everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 83 this week. And let's see, this week I'm going to talk about what happens when you find that alternate source for lumber and kind of what should you be looking for? How should you be prepared when you go to make that purchase? We're going to talk a little bit about some uh, wood movement between different species. And we're going to talk about specifically buying local lumber. And just for fun, I've got a little bit about CITES that we can talk about. Basically, this is a listener Q&A session. I've been meaning to dig into the inbox and kind of knock off some of these emails you guys keep sending me. So let me start by saying thank you to everybody who continues to support the show by sending in questions. I get questions in my email uh, inbox. That's at lumberupdate at gmail.com. I'm getting questions via Instagram. You can find me there at lumberupdate. You can also just go to lumberupdate.com and there's a contact form there as well. You can submit questions. Um, I've also gotten quite a few questions from Patreon supporters. So obviously I bumped those to the top of the list because, well, they've earned it. So if you too want to get your question bumped to the front of the list, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash lumberupdate. Enough of that though. Let's let's get on. Let's talk about some industry news here. Um, this was something that uh, raised a, a few eyebrows. Actually, it was pointed to me from the folks at Cambium Carbon originally. You guys remember them from the episode we did talking about uh, uh, circular economy and uh, this whole beginning of this whole conversation, this this rant, if you will, that I've had on on urban lumber. They pointed me to uh, a bill that was just passed in D.C. that is essentially funding uh, $1.5 billion for the U.S. Forest Service Urban and Community Forestry Program. So obviously that's a that's a big chunk of change, and there's a lot that kind of rolls into that, but it does specifically roll under urban forestry. So this was, you can understand why it was brought to my attention by Camium Carbon. This is right in their wheelhouse. Um, how this is going to work out, it's a little hard to tell um, at this point, but certainly it is more funding going in towards this idea of building silvicultural brands around specific cities, you know, and, and building this, this um, fighting the global warming by providing greater shade and defeating the urban heat dome effect. But also just, I, I think the upshot to this will be continue to create that circular economy idea by providing more near inventory, better management of those trees. Now, there's an additional aspect of this bill that is going into something called um, keep forest forests. And I'm looking at the article and I'm, I'm not right off the top of my head seeing the money. It was like 15 million or something like that. That I'm a little confused about, uh, the idea of keeping forests forests. Certainly we want to protect our forests, but we also need to be very conscious of what we're doing to protect them with the you know growth and forest fires we're seeing lately. One might wonder, is some of that coming from protecting a lot of these forests and not managing them as they should? So I don't know. Um, that's my opinion at this point, but um, I, it is my understanding that some of that money is going toward additional funding of smoke jumpers. So I don't know. Are we just resigned to the fact that we're going to keep our forest forest and have more fire, more forest fires? So therefore, we have to educate and fund more smoke jumpers. Certainly, I, I say let's fund the smoke jumpers because what they do is good stuff. But I don't know. You'd be curious. So I'm, I'm posting a link to this. There's certainly more um, ink spilled on this um, this new law, but certainly from an urban forestry perspective, it does look very intriguing. Um, this was interesting. I got an email from Derek, 
um, who built a Rubo workbench and he built it out of Black Locus. So if you go way, way back in the archives to the episode I did on wood fluorescence, and I specifically talked about how Black Locus is one of the species that does fluoresce under black light. So Derek heard that, said, you know what? I built my workbench out of Black Locus. So he went down into the shop, turned on a black light, and lo and behold, his workbench closed. So I am going to include this image in the show notes on the website, but also as the feature image for the actual podcast file. So depending on how you're listening to this, um, you should see an image that shows what that really cool Rubo workbench glowing in the dark looks like. Um, it, what's interesting is that the sapwood does not fluoresce. It's not interesting. I, I expect that. But you see these dark patches in there, and it looks very, very cool under black light. If you're not seeing this while you're listening to this podcast, go to lumberupdate.com. You will see the image. It'll be in this particular post. But Derek, I'm so glad you shared that with me. It's very, very cool. Now I'm very jealous. I've already got like flashing disco lights in my workshop, but I don't have a glowing workbench. I gotta get me one of those. <laughs> anyway, let, let's dive into the emails. I got quite a few here. So, um, oh shoot, I forgot who this was from. This came in from Instagram, and I apologize. Um, I did not grab the name. I could dig in my Instagram account, but I'm not gonna do that right now. So thank you to whomever you are. But um, they go on to say, in episode 80, you spoke with David Barman about using Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace to source lumber from small or hobby sawyers. I would like to do that, but how do I tell if the person I'm buying from has a good product? I'm comfortable buying from a, quote, real hardwood dealer, but I don't know enough about lumber to tell if something like a check or stain is a fatal flaw or no big deal. I ran across an ad on Craigslist selling cherry and walnut slabs, and some of the pictures show pretty big cracks and some staining. I wouldn't feel comfortable buying these, but what do you think? What would you be looking for if you were going to buy a few boards from a dude in his yard? <laughs> some dude out of the back of his trunk. Would you bring a moisture meter? Why do they feel they can charge the same board foot price as the hardwood dealer? How do I not buy lumber that is only good for firewood? So I'm sure there's a lot of people who've had this question. I mean, you could apply the same question to anything. I've run into this lately, buying bicycle parts. <laughs> How do I know that this dude, you know, hasn't cracked this carbon fiber frame, you know? Uh, same thing with tools. Um, I bought a lot of tools on eBay back in the day, and I bought a lot of tools off of, well, not Facebook Marketplace, but off Craigslist. And you never know, like, you know, the best way to go is inspect the tool and kind of get an idea what you're looking at. So let's break this down the same way. The important part, um, if you're buying from Facebook or Craigslist, it, it should be local that you can go and actually inspect the wood. Not so much just inspect the wood, but inspect the sawyer. Like, who is the guy selling this? And start asking them about it. You know, where, where did the wood come from? Did you saw it yourself? You know, um, if so, do you know where the logs came from? Where did you get the logs? Where did they grow? How local are they coming from? Why did the trees come down? Just, you know, you don't want to interrogate the guy or girl, but just have a conversation. You know, part of this whole idea of understanding the provenance and understanding urban logging and all that, we like to know where the stuff comes from. So you can have a very, very, you know, open and honest conversation about the provenance of this wood. And through that conversation, you're going to have some idea of how involved this seller is. Did they just pick up these boards from somebody else? And maybe they don't know, and they're not gonna have very much skin in the game. They're also not gonna know too much about it. So you already may know, 
you know, I'm not going to get a lot of answers from this person and that's not going to be the route to pursue. I'm not saying walk away from the lumber at that point, but certainly if this person is who you're buying from actually felt those trees, they're going to have a lot of idea uh, about what happened before there were boards. So, you know, how were they sawn? Why did you choose it to saw them that way? What did you run into while you were sawing it? Did you run into any, you know, issues sawing it? Were there problems with the wood? Um, and has this wood been dried? And if so, how? Was it air dried? How long was it air dried? Did How did you do that? Did you stack it and weight it? Did you anchor seal the ends? Did you provide some ventilation on it? Have you paid attention to sawdust piles, like looking for bugs? Was it kiln dried? How? What kind of kiln? You know, vacuum kiln, RF kiln, solar kiln, dehumidification kiln. Did you do it? Did somebody else do it? Um, all those things, again, are going to inform you and give you a better idea of just like how seasoned is this seller? Is this someone who's selling their first bundle of, of, of wood or is this someone who's been doing it for a while, has a series of contacts and kind of knows what they're doing? You'll be able to tell very, very quickly how new to the game they are. Again, whether you choose to walk away is up to you, but you're going to have a better idea where you're standing. Um, absolutely. If you have a moisture meter, bring it. Now, if you have a pin meter, I don't recommend just going and start punching a bunch of holes in the guy's wood. It'd be better to have a pinless meter so you can take a series of measurements um, from the ends of the boards and the center of the boards, depending on how wide they are, from the edge of the board to the center of the board. Get a, a variety of measurements. Find out kind of what the... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? The gradient would be, you know, what is the difference between the, the moisture at the end and the moisture in the middle? There's certainly going to be a difference because wood drops its moisture from the ends much more rapidly. But if there's a massive delta there, if you've got a 20% swing from the end to the middle, there's a lot more move that's going to happen in that board and possibly a lot more checking if the boards haven't been sealed properly. So, you know, you're going to see some differences, but if you have a gradient of, you know, 5% or less, that's gonna be pretty normal, I think. Um, if the boards are really, really thick, a pinless meter is still gonna go in about an inch. So, you know, if you've got three inch thick wood, you're not gonna really get right to the center, but by flipping the board over, you can kind of, you know, get a, a, an idea of the measurement somewhere close to the center. So you may need to flip a couple of boards. I'm not saying measure every single board in the stack, but measure two or three and kind of, jot these numbers down and kind of take averages and figure out where they're going. That is going to tell you just how much more drying needs to happen. Now, at the same time, if you're seeing um, a dramatic swing the opposite direction where the ends are wetter than the middle, then you could have some problems there. It could be, um, and again, it depends upon the gradient. If it's a small gradient, that may not be a big of an issue, but if it was, if it's really dry in the middle, say below your equilibrium moisture content, which is also good to know, you should have some idea what the EMC is for like the boards in your shop, the boards in your region, you know, give or take a couple of percent. So if you measure that board and it is higher than the equilibrium moisture content, well, you know, it's got to come down. If it's lower than that, and you ask the guy, has it been dried? And he knows like, how long ago did this come out of the kiln? And if it's still below EMC and it's been out of the kiln for two weeks, that raises some red flags. There could be some case hardening issues in there. There could be some weakness in there where the center of that board was dried too much or too quickly. And essentially it's, it's become almost baked and it's not reabsorbing moisture like you might expect. 
Now, the um, and certainly the middle of the board is going to raise in moisture content slower than the ends of the board. So look at the end of the board. If the end of the board is, say, I'm just going to make up some numbers right now. Say your EMC is, is about 12%. The end of the board is at 15%. And the middle of the board is at 8%. That's a big delta there, and it's obviously picking up moisture rapidly on the ends, um, but it's not making it into the center of the board. Again, if it's been out of the kiln for a couple of weeks, you should have seen some of that moisture migrate to the middle of the board. So that's the bigger red flag. Certainly if there's a delta where it's, it's wetter in the middle and is in the end and that delta is quite large, it just may mean you need to be aware that there's more drying need to be done. You need to keep those ends sealed and you need to keep it ventilated or you're gonna see mold. And the ventilation is also going to help um, evaporate off that excess moisture. The other way around where it's drier in the middle and wetter in the ends, that's a red flag that I would probably walk away from. Unless there's a really good explanation for that, like it just came out of the kiln yesterday um, or just came out of the kiln, I'd say less than a week ago, it's probably okay. If it's been more than a week, I would be really, I'd walk away, frankly, because you just don't know what kind of tension, what kind of issues are built up in the inside of that board. And certain species are going to react more violently to that. So, you know, if you've got a more open porous wood, that moisture differential with it dry in the middle could cause a lot of cracking, a lot of checking and shake in the middle and possible cell wall collapse. Um, because you've got some density or lower density, you've got some pockets of air in there. And if you've got that case hardened situation, you could just have it collapse upon itself and cause a lot of problems, not to mention all kinds of tension that causes massive kickback on a table saw. So yes, if you're gonna do this a lot, you probably wanna have a moisture meter and take your time to get some of those, um, some of those readings and, and kind of make some conclusions. And if the guy who's selling it, of course, is gonna be standing there and you can have to continue this conversation the whole time you're doing it and ask them about the process. Again, the more they know, the better you can feel about this, uh, about this purchase. Basically, you might wanna have a, a basic understanding of lumber grading so you can do some on-site judgment. And by basic understanding, I mean, go back and listen to my lumber grading episode, but have an understanding, FAS means 83% clear. Um, a, a number, um, excuse me, a select means 83% clear on one face, whereas FAS is two faces. Number one common is 66% clear. Number two common, um, goes down to 33% clear. Um, it, it, number two comma is going to be very, very obvious. But this goes to the question of why do, why do they feel they can charge the same price as the hardwood dealer? Well, it depends. Like, what is the same price? Are they charging the same price as FAS lumber, the hardwood dealer? Then you need to have an understanding of what FAS grade looks like. So you can go and, and look at this lumber and say, is it actually FAS grade? If it's not, then you can turn around and say, look, this is really grading more like number one common. My local dealer is selling that for, for you know, X. I, I really expect you to at least match that price. The other reason that they tend to sell their lumber at the same price as hardwood dealers, that's, that may be all they know. You know, they got some wood, they been able to determine that it's cherry. So they look up their local hardwood dealer, they call their local hardwood dealer and say, what are you guys selling, you know, eight quarter cherry for? And they give them a price. So then they think, okay, I'm gonna sell my eight quarter cherry because that's the same price this guy's selling it for. The thing is, is there could be a lot of other things that the hardwood dealer has done that this local person has not done, which goes back to, has it been dried? How was it dried? The hardwood dealer, commercial hardwood dealer is gonna have 
be using kiln dried material nine times out of 10. If their stuff has not been kiln dried um, really well, um, then you might say, look, uh, it's not quite the same price. And you can start making a case for a lower price there. But the best and most the easy way, most easiest way, is that grammar? Um, the, the best way to, to have this conversation is by figuring out the grade, have an understanding of what that grade's gonna be. And remember, NHL-like grades are what we call cutting grades as appeared to appearance grades. When we think of it as an appearance thing, like 83% clear, so, you know, 20% of this board shouldn't have any knots in it. Really, it's 83% being able to get a certain cutting size from it. And again, review my um, my podcast on NHL lumber, NHLA lumber grades. I want to say it's in the first 10 episodes of this. Review that. Get an understanding what those cutting sizes could be. If it's FAS, it needs to at least be 6 inches wide by 8 feet long. And that six by eight foot cutting needs to be 83% clear. So you can look at a board and see, oh, wow, there's a whole bunch of knots on that. That's not FAS, but that's not actually true. If all the knots are kind of shunted over to one side of the board and the other side of the board is, is relatively clear, if you can get a six by eight foot, um, six foot inch by eight foot cutting out of that clear side of the board, that will be FAS. So have an understanding of that and you'll have a much better idea of how, what does this lumber actually look like? And for that matter, you want to familiarize yourself with local pricing as much as possible with the, um, the real lumber yards, but also if you know other guys who are selling on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, or maybe have a small micro mill and you've visited them, what are they selling their stuff for? You know, is it air dried? Okay, well, what's that price? Have an understanding of your local market so you can have a more informed discussion when you start talking to this person. Ultimately, I think just having this conversation with them, you're gonna get a warm fuzzy or you're not. And if you're not gonna get a warm fuzzy, unless this stuff is priced dirt cheap, then walk away. Um, the biggest thing that I wanna know about is the bucks. Um, if it has been kiln dried, was it kiln dried, you know, held at high temperature for 48 hours? You know, can this person testify to that? Testify, that sounds so official. Can they attest to it? They were there, they knew what was happening, or they got a kiln dry certificate, a heat treatment certificate from the person who did the drying for them. Those are things that you wanna know. And by having that conversation, if you're getting a lot of like shrugs and I don't know, I'm not really sure, well then now you've got bargaining chips to say, look, dude, you're pricing this the same way as the guy down the street who I know has kiln dried it, who I know has graded it properly, or I know where the lumber came from. You don't have any of these answers. This is, I'm taking a risk, knock 50% off the price. And if they're like, absolutely not, well, then there you go. You're not going to buy from that person. So it all comes down to that conversation about where the stuff came from. And you'll very quickly get an idea of just how seasoned, how professional this person is and how much ownership they take over the process. Um, some people may be willing to let you have a sample board, you know, or for, for a small price, you know, a couple of bucks, you can buy a board and go work with it and get back to them. You know, you may run the risk of him selling the lumber to somebody else, but that's another another option that you can look at. Other times, if the stuff is super, super dirty, um, don't be afraid to show up with a stiff bristle brush and brush the stuff clean or bring your block plane along. You know, that's not something I would say at a commercial lumber yard. You want to come and start planing off the rough sawn material to look at it. But at a small place like this, you know, look, if the stuff is super dirty and it's covered with, you know, bird poop and whatever other kind of poop, 
you know, hey, I'm not going to buy this. Certainly not for the price you're asking for because it's super dirty. I don't know what's underneath it. But at the same time, if it is a super dirty pile that was found on a loft somewhere, they're probably not going to be charging that much for it. And if they are, you immediately have a response in the negotiation to drive the price down a little bit. So um, I'd like to throw this back to you guys. How many of you who have bought lumber uh, through alternative sources like this, um, what have you done um, to verify that what you were getting was, was a good deal? Um, what kind of uh, negotiation tactics have you used? We don't want to rip off these lumber people, folks, because ultimately what you want is to find a long-term source. You want to find somebody you can go back to time and time again and become a loyal customer and help that small micro um, sawmill succeed, frankly. So it's not about you know nickel and diming them to death so that you get the better deal and I win, you lose. That's just not good business. Um, but I'm sure there's folks out there who have had some success with this. Certainly, uh, we had Tommaso on the show and he talked about the, the whole idea of using auctions and things. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people in this in this audience who I'm sure have some experience with this. So if you do, please uh, write in or send me a voicemail um, and let me know uh, as well, because I know there's a lot of people who ask me this question. Everyone's afraid they're going to end up with a, with a raw deal. And there's always a risk of that. But I think you can be an informed buyer. Frankly, if you want to be an informed buyer, just listen to this show. <laughs> well, little uh, self-service there. Uh, okay, this is a question from Jason. He says, I bought some four-quarter hard maple and a bunch of four, five, and eight-quarter walnut from a hardware dealer recently. It's all rough cut, all kiln dried. It's a wholesale lumber yard that during COVID decided to make uh, a retail rack and let us little guys in. Uh, my observation is the difference between the walnut and maple for stability is quite large. I swear though the walnut has not moved a micron. In fact, I just glued up the top for an end table out of the five-quarter and it's the flattest panel I've ever glued together. Meanwhile, the hard maple was used as secondary wood for the drawer box. Um, the stuff cuffs so hard, I was worried I'd be able to get, I, I was worried if I'd be able to get the panel into the grooves in the drawer box. So I don't know how long any of the boards were on the rack of the dealer, but I bought them at the same time. So they've been in, in the same climates. It was just remarkable to me how different they were in wood movement. I've worked with all these species before, though I mostly use cherry, uh, but sell them together. Um, so the, the real question is, what's going on here? Well, this is a really good question. Now, there could be a thousand things going on, but let's, let's assume, I mean, there's a lot of controls here that he bought it from a commercial lumber dealer, especially like a wholesaler that's used to selling in larger orders. They're going to have kiln dried stuff. They're going to have heat treatment certificates. It's all going to be done above the board. And there's going to be paperwork trail a mile long in order for this all to work. So let's assume things have been dried well and properly. Um, and that's a safe assumption from a wholesaler like that. The difference between hard maple and walnut, um, as far as tangential and radial movement, there are some differences, but it's not like dramatic that you can say, oh my God, yeah, of course walnut didn't move. The fact of the matter is, is it comes down to a density thing. Hard maple is quite a bit more dense than walnut. So the walnut's got air pockets. It's got dead air in there. So when the walnut moves, there's space for the wood to move into without bumping into the fibers next to it. More compression room that can allow a panel to stay flatter. The hard maple, however, has next to no dead space. So when those fibers move, they're immediately bumping into their neighbors and they're bumping into their neighbors and bumping into their neighbors, causing that domino effect that's gonna cause the wood to, to possibly cup. So, 
couple of things. Um, you were working with a drawer box. So I'm going to make some assumptions here, but drawer boxes, generally, they're about half inch thick. Drawer bottoms, about a half inch thick, sometimes even a quarter inch thick. So you've milled this stuff down. It was four quarter hard maple we started with, but depending on how it was milled, there was a su probably substantial amount of moisture dumping going on. And because that's a very, very dense wood, you could have milled up a four quarter walnut board and a four quarter maple board the exact same way. Maybe say you removed all the wood off of one face, and I guarantee you you're gonna see that hard maple board moving or cupping more than the walnut board. I should say cupping, deforming more, not necessarily moving more. The walnut board may actually be moving more, but because there's that compression factor, that buffer of dead air, it's not actually cupping as much. It may be moving. In fact, if I remember off the top of my head, walnut has a slightly higher tangential. I think it's I think it's like 7.4%, whereas maple is around six. I could be totally wrong there, so it doesn't really matter. The numbers aren't that important. But that, that lower density allows the walnut panel to stay flat while it moves, whereas the hard maple panel, it doesn't have that option. So I would suspect that um, there was a substantial amount of wood removed. Maybe it was only removed from one side. You know, best practice is when you're planing something down, run it through the planer one way, flip it in for in, and remove some off the other side. So you're removing wood equally from both faces and kind of ending up with that, um, you know, evening out the flatness. But ultimately, I think anytime you're dealing with the denser wood, you're going to actually see that it could distort and deform more. And there could have been you know, a moisture issue there, depending on how long it sat on the rack, um, or maybe it didn't sit on the rack very long at all. Maybe it came out of the kiln very recently, and what you're seeing is some of that uh, equalization that's happened over time. There's also the fact that why did it end up on the retailer act in the first place? Now this is going back and throwing a little bit of doubt on the hardwood dealer, but if they take, they normally are wholesaler and they've decided to open a small retail rack, what determined what wood went on that rack? Um, were they defects from another project? Were they, you know, uh, leftovers from another bundle somewhere else? How old were they? Um, all kinds of things that could come into that. I don't want to necessarily go down that road too far, but it is something to consider. The biggest takeaway here is pay attention to that density. So when we're looking at the technical specs of a wood, certainly you want an idea what that tangential and radial percentage numbers are. It's good to know. But more importantly, look at the density. If you see a really high density in something like a diffuse porous wood, you know, small, tightly packed pores, high density, and you see a larger um, movement percentage, that board is going to be much more prone to warping than a lower density like large poured, maybe ring porous wood. You know, the ring porous, all those pores are lined up together and they're, you know, there's plenty of room. There's actually like lines, like perforations throughout the wood that allow that movement to happen and very little actual deformation of the board. So yeah, it's more than just the movement percentage numbers that you find in those tech spec sheets. Look at the density as well, pay attention to the pores. All of those things go into how much that wood deforms. Uh, this is from another Jason, different Jason. Um, he says, uh, my family and I were cutting up some felled trees in our almond orchard. Sweet. And I cut this trunk up and sealed it with armor seal within 30 minutes of cutting it with the chainsaw. The next day I cut into the slabs and there is some expected cracking in the end. Um, I traced the cracks with a pencil to enhance the cracking. He sent me some pictures. Um, if I cut the ends off an inch or two past the crack, would it make a difference or would it continue to split regardless? 
So first of all, if I remember correctly, this email was sent to me um, within the last few months. So this happened in the summer. Um, they were felling trees, pruning trees in the summer when the sap was rising. So there's a lot of moisture, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of sugar, a lot of things going on inside that tree. So you're gonna see a lot more movement. You're gonna see a lot more checking because there's a lot more moisture to be evacuated from that board, um, both free water and bound water. So it's, it's absolutely, I would expect there to be some checking there. You put an armor seal on the end within 30 minutes of cutting, that's that's good although i might say i like gravity draining my boards so stand them up for like you know a couple of hours and let as much of that free water drain as possible um or a day um and then come back and and uh, anchor seal it after a day now you're going to see more checking if you don't seal it you know if you wait to seal it after a day but you're also going to see a lot more water draining out um a couple schools of thoughts there um but Almond, it's, it's a nut wood, kind of like a fruit wood in its density. Very, very dense. So like we talked about in the last question, and this almond wood looks very much like a fruit wood. It has practically invisible pores. They're super, super tiny, super closely packed together, diffuse pores, very, very high density um, in the wood. So checking is gonna happen. Deformation is gonna happen anyway. Um, seeing as that there was a lot of moisture in that tree because it was felled in the summer, seeing as you might have sealed in a lot of that free water by anchor sealing it so quickly um, and not gravity draining it, then yes, you're going to see some cracks in the end. Do you cut those cracks off and seal again or do you leave them alone? My response is leave them alone. The crack has released some of that immediate tension brought up by all that moisture, um, moisture transfer. But that crack is also providing a space to release more tension. So just like that less dense board that's got dead air in it, you've created a crack, which is essentially dead air, that is now uh, allowing that board uh, a space to release more tension into as the board dries further. So if you cut off that crack, you'll expose a freshly cut end with greater moisture that has to dump. So much moisture, greater moisture loss faster, just like the, and, and then you're most likely gonna see new cracks open in place of the one you just cut off. You know, because you've got greater tension and no like escape valve for that tension to go into. So the existing end of the board is kind of insulating the rest of the board, if you will. It's got that pressure valve in there in the form of that crack. And the rest of the board, um, as moisture loss happens to the end of the board, it's kind of dumping out that crack and it's preventing that crack from walking further up the board. In the end here, Jason, you're dealing with almond wood. Very dense, very oily nut wood. Uh, it can be ornery and, and just difficult to dry. So they can be very hard to predict. Um, the important part is leave that check alone and come back a couple days and see, has the check gotten like much, 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 much worse? Okay, maybe there's an instance where you might wanna cut it off because that crack is, is getting horribly worse. But you also may not be able to fight that because you're dealing with a particularly ornery species and a difficult one to dry. But I gotta tell you, damn, it's beautiful stuff. Um, really could make some unique pieces with something like that. So just be aware, anytime you're felling in the summer, there's a lot of moisture to equilibrate. So that's a great opportunity for that gravity drying method. Stand it up, you know, stand it up against a wall, leave it for a day, 
then anchor seal it. Yes, you will see some checking, but I think you're gonna dump a lot of the free water uh, before it gets trapped behind the, the anchor seal. It's not like anchor seal is completely waterproof. Water will still seep out, but you're also gonna see a lot of mold, um, especially summer felled trees, because that water is filled with sugar and the mold's gonna love it and it's gonna call the bugs from miles away as well. So there's a couple of reasons to get as much of that free water out uh, as soon as you can. Uh, okay. Uh, Nicholas uh, from The Urban Craftsman uh, wrote to me and he says, I have a small lumber business in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, like many, I started with an Alaskan mill and predominantly milled for myself. That slowly turned into selling to other makers and now I have about 2,000 square feet set up for retail where the public can access it. I balance the lumber out between urban slash large pieces and select better veneer grade dimensional wood. The dimensional stuff I am buying at 500 to 1,000 board feet at a time and marking it up slightly, which doesn't equate to much profit. Um, I'd like to go more direct to lower my cost, but I can't seem to locate any sawmills willing to sell local lumber to me. To simplify things, I have a 2,500 board foot dehumidification kiln, so I could potentially kiln dry it myself too. Good to know. Excellent. So here's the situation. We got a guy who started milling us some wood, started turning into a business. That business started you know, growing to the point where he can't actually supply enough of his own material to fill his customer needs. So now he's buying more material to bring it in to fill his customer needs. So this is an interesting question about how a micro mill and, and retailer can begin to kind of integrate into what is a pre-existing supply chain structure of the quote lumber biz. Um, in a lot of ways, the guys who start milling their own lumber and grow beyond using it just for themselves, you guys are the disruptors in the marketplace. And I don't mean that in a bad way, um, although a lot of people probably would. Um, so the fact that you're a disruptor means that you're probably going to meet some resistance when you reach out to the established um, lumber dealers and sawmills. So what I'd be curious to find out with is when you talk to these mills, what are they saying in response? They're just flat out, no, I won't sell to you. Why? Why won't they sell to you? What are their um, objections? I would want to know what those objections are and might be able to counter those. You know, you're cutting into my own business. Well, is that really true or not? Like, or you're not buying enough to make it worth my while. Okay, what, how much do I need to buy to make it worth your while? Or what if I dry it for, what if I dry it myself? Because he's got that, and that kiln capacity. Uh, what if I'm buying it green? Um, that type of thing. There's a lot of questions that you can start with. Start a dialogue with these sawmills and find out how can we do business? Why don't you want to do business with me? There may just be, you may be in an impasse. They see you as a direct threat to their customers and they're not going to want to sell to you. Um, or if they are, they're going to market up to the point where um, you have to mark it up and the original guy's gonna end up being cheaper. So try to come to an understanding. Again, back to this idea of buying from people on Craigslist and whatever, you wanna form a partnership here, hopefully a long-term relationship that is going to help you in the future. Because you may buy a thousand board feet, you're gonna need a thousand board feet again. If your business is going well, you're gonna need to buy it again. So what can be even better is if you start to build like a buying program from the sawmill, he knows the kind of material that you're looking for, the stuff that your customers are looking for, and he can begin to kind of set aside those logs and start selling it for you long-term. That has to come from that relationship, from building that, that dialogue. But I also think there's another path to consider. Look, look at your own history. You know, you started, um, with a chainsaw mill and, and milling stuff just for your own use. 
well, there's lots of other people out there doing the same thing. And maybe they haven't turned the corner where they're starting to sell their material. Or maybe they still have a large kind of near inventory. Maybe you reach out to people just like yourself who are maybe one year like you were a year ago, or you were five years ago, or you were three months ago, and give them a helping hand like buy some of their material so that they can start to grow their business. And what can happen is you could build like a collaboration. All those disruptors I talked about earlier can kind of band together in their own market and continue to grow their own market outside of the lumber establishment to the point where now you're a big enough collaborative effort that the lumber establishment needs to pay attention and go from there. But I also think the story to be told there of you know, the material I'm selling, um, it's either sawn by myself or I bought it from guys just like me who've sawn it themselves. That's a really cool story. And frankly, it does give you a little bit of leeway when it comes to your pricing. The lumber business is a ridiculously low profit margin business, razor, razor thin profit margins. But the uniqueness of what it is you're selling, the stuff that was sawn by you, local stuff, that uniqueness does have a price tag associated with it. So the more your inventory is of that unique nature, the more you can quote slightly higher prices to do that. But again, I'm gonna reiterate, this goes back to starting a dialogue, building a conversation and building a relationship with, um, with these potential sawmills. So this leads me to my last question, which is actually a voicemail from Willie. This is Willie from Freeville. I want to use ebony salvaged from a circa 1920s piano to make green and green plugs for a small plant stand. I have no idea where the wood for those keys came from, so my first question is whether there's a way to find that out. I read some papers about the challenges of using DNA sequencing to identify dried tropical hardwoods, but has the technology improved? My second question is what would happen if someone wanted to ship my plant stand with the piano key ebony out of the United States and later bring it back in? Would that be legal? What sort of documentation would I need to provide to them to be sure that Border Control, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would not confiscate it? Again, thanks for everything you do. Okay, Willie. Good questions. Lots of stuff to unpack here. So um, DNA sequencing is still, it's something that absolutely can be done. It's something that's incredibly expensive um, and in many ways can be destructive. So you would need to send off um, some of those piano keys knowing full well you may not get them back. Um, and the results you may get probably won't be that decisive. Um, as he was uh, alluding to, kiln-dried tropical hardwoods, uh, the older they get, the more difficult they can be to identify as um, further hardening and drying out uh, of the extractives and all the stuff inside makes it kind of difficult. It's not impossible, it just becomes impractical. Um, and a lot of times you may find that the lab is maybe not willing to do it, um, because depending on what the type of heavy it is, it could actually be a Cites appendix one species, and they'd rather not, you know, mess with it. Uh, whether whether it is or not, they'd rather not take the chance. So I'm not sure that that's the best way to go. Now, not having any idea what piano they came from, um, that can be pretty difficult. If you knew, like the manufacturer, this was a Yamaha piano, this was a Steinway piano, um, you can reach out to the company itself. Um, they will have records. Now, you may know nothing. You may not know when the piano was built, um, but you might be able to make a guess. Get yourself within a decade or so. They will have 
documentation that shows where the materials came from, not just from a um, import-export perspective, but from a tonality perspective. They have purchased material from certain areas. They know how it performs in their soundboards and their keys and their hammers, things like that. Pianos especially have so many different parts that um, have been specifically chosen for specific structural and tonality reasons that if they get into some good stock, they document the crap out of it because they know they want to try to get that same thing. Or they know, kind of like Vintners know, oh, that was a good year. You know, um, There's a distinct personality to the run of pianos built from that particular purchase of ebony uh, or maple or, or um, you know spruce for the soundboard or something like that. So they have a lot of documentation on that. Luthiers are exactly the same way. So reaching out to, say it's a Steinway, reaching out to Steinway saying, I have some ebony... Um, keys from one of your pianos. Can you tell me, you know, what that wood would be? And they may say, well, do you have any idea what year it came from? And you can say, no, I have no idea. Then they may not be able to help it, but they could probably tell you, well, in general, we've been buying this ebony, this type of ebony, you know, up until 1890 something, we were buying this ebony. From 1950 on, we were buying this ebony. They're going to have an idea. I'd say more than an idea. Um, and the more accurate you can get on the vintage of that piano and the maker of the piano, the more accurate you can get not only on what the species identification is, but the actual provenance. You could actually get documentation of where it came from, which concession it came from. Now, certainly the older it is, the more difficult that's going to be. CITES, as it relates to lumber, was not a thing until 2008. Oh, excuse me, that's a Lacey Act. Um, and... and uh, Lacey regulation. So let me back up. Sorry, because I just inadvertently misquoted here. CITES has been around for a while and CITES appendix species have been around for a while, but it wasn't until Lacey, the U.S. Lacey Act started regulating lumber that people had to start to pay a lot more attention and more documentation had to be acquired. The documentation kind of needed to be there for CITES, but there really was no enforcement arm. Lacey provides for enforcement here in the US. So since 2008, paperwork has gotten a lot denser and a lot more traceable. Prior to 2008, it could be a little bit difficult. However, CITES regulated species have been around for a while. As far as you know, each individual species, it depends upon when the convention voted them in and what appendix they were voted on to. But documentation can be a lot more difficult when you get back, you know, 100 years where nobody was paying any attention to that. But they're still, for tonality purposes, are going to have an idea of the species being used because, as I said, that's their product. You know, look at guitars. I've talked about this in the Tonewood episode. The Gibson people, the Taylor guitar people, the Martin people can talk about a certain run of guitars as having a certain color to their sound. You know, these 1950s guitars, mahogany guitars, sound like this. Uh, and that's why Jimi Hendrix used them, etc. Um, so there's a lot that you can find there. Now, regarding CITES, they're, most likely they're going to be ebony. If they're not exactly ebony, they're in the Dalbergia genus. They are on CITES. They're, if they're not Appendix 2, they might be Appendix 1. They are CITES regulated. If it's a black wood, it's CITES regulated, almost without fail. Here's the thing. You have the lumber already. You're not exporting it. That's not your responsibility. So if you sell this to a customer and that customer thinks they may be shipping out of the country, it is that customer's responsibility to apply for what's called a CITES passport. Now, as the seller, 
you may say to this person, hey, you know, if this is a person you know is moving around a lot, moving out of the country, you may say, look, you may have to acquire CITES passport because the ebony used in this was reclaimed from a piano. We all know that. That's a nice story. But this wood is now CITES regulated. Here's the thing. Officially, you need to have a CITES passport for any CITES listed material crossing the border, being exported, and then being re-imported. This is why professional like orchestra players have CITES passports. Now, generally, that is arranged by for the symphony they play for. Some instances, they do it themselves. Um, but they have to have a CITES passport for their violin, for whatever the instrument is that has rosewood or ebony or ivory sometimes, depending upon um, the, the, the vintage of the instrument. They have a CITES passport for that instrument because they are the owner of that instrument or the symphony orchestra is the owner of that instrument. As the owner of this plant stand, they're the ones that have to apply for and hold the CITES passport. Now, the CITES passport is not like you get it and you're good to go forever. It is a one-time thing. It is the CITES passport that permits the export, the moving of this from the US to France. If that person then moves from France to Germany, they have to get another CITES passport. If they move from Germany back to the US, they get another CITES passport. It's a one-time thing, and it can be very difficult if you move around a lot. This is why I refer to orchestra players and why oftentimes the symphony itself manages these things because they can, you know, they can be in, in Salzburg for the music festival um, for three months and then be in Czechoslovakia to play the Mozart festival up there like two months later. Um, it can be very, very difficult. So as the woodworker selling to the customer, you, you can tell them, look, this has CITES listed species on it. It will be your responsibility to apply for a CITES passport. So that's the official party line. Here's the shortage, um, the shortfall, I should say. Right now, home goods, furniture, doesn't really get looked at twice. Musical instruments get paid attention to because there is a large percentage of musical instruments that have CITES species in them. Fretboards, um, soundboards, things like that. It's, it's almost expected that a violin is gonna have a CITES species in it. Um, the violin bow is gonna have a CITES species in it. Uh, the double bass, the viola, the cello, um, all of those um, are expected to have a CITES species. So you run an instrument through customs, it immediately gets flagged, where's your CITES passport? Run a piece of furniture through customs, well, you're not carrying that piece of furniture on you, whereas the musician is probably carrying that violin case with them. Um, or it's being shipped with the orchestra, and the orchestra immediately raises a flat red flag. This is a shipment from the Philadelphia Philharmonic. That means there's instruments immediately flagged for inspection where your CITES passports. A piece of furniture could be put in a box. You know, picture Raiders of the Lost Ark plywood box, very unobtrusive plywood box that may go through customs and it's listed as home goods. And it's not immediately going to get flagged and say, is there CITES list of stuff in here? In fact, it's probably not because that customs agent has a thousand and one things to do and they're not being told, hey, this is where stuff, you know, you need to pay more attention to this. So the good citizen knows that I have CITES listed material in my piece of furniture. I should go to US Fish and Wildlife and apply for a CITES passport. There's information right there on the website or just Google CITES passport and you'll be linked to the, the application on US Fish and Wildlife. I don't know whether it'll be worth it. I honestly, I haven't, I haven't, um, I should have 
talk to my buyer um, to know, well, it's going to vary. It's going to vary depending on what it is. I haven't, you know, procured a CITES passport for a plant stand or even for an instrument to know what it costs or what the process and what kind of a headache it is or isn't. But it's probably, depending on who you talk to, they might even say, no, it's not necessary. Also say, here's a plant stand and those tiny little black dots, those ebony plugs, that's the CITES stuff. The rest of it's cherry, you know, there may be a percentage, like if, if you know, less than 1% of it is a CITES species, it's not even going to matter. It doesn't qualify for CITES passport. You won't know until you bring it up. Um, and if you bring it up and then you don't apply for it and then ship it, you might possibly get red flagged. So it's kind of one of those things you need to use your best judgment. The good citizen of the world is going to apply for it knowing that there's a CITES listed species in there, but it may not be necessary, maybe entirely unnecessary. But that's how it works. Technically, home goods do apply. There is a writer. If you go to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife website, there is a, a line item in there about home goods and decorative uh, decorative items. Uh, but it's the same application that you would use if you were applying for an instrument um, passport. So that's how CITES works. But that's also, dare I say it, how some countries smuggle lumber. <laughs> They take lumber and they build it into furniture and it goes across the border without any concern. Now, these are not sighty species, but, you know, they bring in, they could bring lumber across the border from Siberia and China with no problem or with major problem. But they could take that lumber, build it into furniture and ship it out of China and no one thinks twice about it because the amount of furniture China ships daily is staggering and no one thinks anything about and it's listed as made from you know this random species you know uh, the genus with spp for the species meaning multiple species in play and no one thinks anything about it now if it's an enormous shipment yes it might raise some more red flags but that's an area where currently the regulation can allow some things to fall through the cracks so there's the honest truth in my um uh, my opinion, I don't know whether further, further regulation is a good or a bad thing in that instance, you know, especially with supply chain issues being what they are. Do we throw more roadblocks up in the way? I don't really know the answer to that. But there you go, Willie. That's what you, as the woodworker, your obligation ends when you sell it to somebody. So being a good, you know, good to your customer, tell them they need to be aware of this, but it's not your responsibility after that. If you were buying those piano keys from like a piano maker in Germany and bringing them in, the seller would need to have the CITES passport and you as the receiver, the importer, would need to have a CITES passport. Well, actually what would happen is the seller creates, gets a CITES export passport. They give you a copy of it and you use that as your import documentation. Now you may choose to split the cost or the seller may take care of the cost entirely for that. It's the same CITES passport. They have a copy and you have a copy. You both have to have both sides of it. But if you're not actually doing the shipping or the importing, it's not your responsibility. If the material is already in the country, it's not your responsibility. I hope that helps, Willie. Um, and I hope you guys found this interesting. Wide variety of topics this, uh, uh, this episode. So as always, thanks for listening, everybody. And go buy some hardwood. Go buy it from a local guy. Ask him a bunch of questions. And if he gives you some guff about it, tell him Shannon told me to ask all these questions. You probably have no idea what you're talking about, but do it anyway.